This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for October 22nd, 2020. More Mac malware, including signed software, a new threat called Gravity Rat jumps from PC to Mac, and the 411 on 5G. Will it matter to you? Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Hey, Josh, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? Good. You didn't go and order an iPhone, did you? I know we talked about this last week, but maybe you changed your mind at the last minute. Nope, I didn't change my mind, <laughs> and I'm not going to. <laughs> okay, me neither. So no new iPhones for us. And the, the real, uh, we mentioned last week, the, the only big feature in the new iPhone is 5G. And in the second part of the show, we're going to talk about how 5G works, what 5G actually means, and does it really make a difference for you? And spoiler, it probably won't. You probably won't get those 5G speeds. We've got some interesting malware information. Now, a while back, we talked about Apple notarizing Mac malware. The notarization process is something a developer does when they build an app, they submit it to Apple, and Apple includes a certificate from the developer, which is what's called code signing, to prove that the app comes from the developer. And once this is done, uh, people can distribute their apps um, either in the Mac App Store or directly via download to people. And it's a way of sort of saying that this app is safe and it's okay. So Apple has been notarizing Mac malware, and apparently it's happened again. This is actually pretty interesting because uh, I haven't really seen anyone else talking about this yet. Well, we have an article on the Intego Mac Security blog talking about this new notarized malware. But this is the second time that this happened in a space of about a month and a half where uh, Apple has been caught accidentally notarizing Mac malware. Now, again, I think we mentioned this um, previously when we talked about this happening the first time. The notarization process is an automated process that essentially checks whatever app is being submitted to Apple for characteristics of known malware. So we don't really know a whole lot about the process that they use, but we know it's an automated process and they're essentially just checking for malware. Um, so if they don't see anything obvious, then it, it, it gets notarized very quickly and then um, you know it can be distributed publicly. And until Apple finds out that something is malicious, uh, then something that's notarized may be out there in the public. And so that's what happened here. So the previous time uh, we saw some adware uh, that was, you know, masquerading as a fake Flash player, as they usually do. And this By the time, way, Flash Player is officially dead at the end of 2020. <laughs> so if you ever see a suggestion that you need to update your Flash Player, just forget it. Yeah, we can't say that often enough. And we'll continue to keep reminding people of that because it's it's important that everybody knows about this. I have an idea for our last episode of the year, which is released on December 31st. We're going to call it Flash Player is Officially Dead. Okay, I we like We can talk that. about the history of Flash Player and malware. Perfect. Yep. Uh wow that that that'll be an interesting episode because there's uh there's quite a history there. <laughs> 
But uh, so once again, this is actually a different bit of adware that it's distributing this time. Last time um, we categorized the various samples as Schleyer or Bundlor. This time they are Mac offers, which is also sometimes called Max offer deal. Um, that's the adware family that's uh, being used this time. But the these half dozen uh, disk images that we've come across have uh, in, initially a 0% detection rate on virus total, which means very few, if any, antivirus uh, products are actually detecting these as malicious. Now, thankfully, Apple actually did revoke the developer certificate fairly quickly, um, probably within maybe a week or so, uh, maybe a little bit less than that from when the malware first started showing up um, when people first started uploading samples of this to virus total and, you know, wondering if this was malware. And so that's a good thing. At least, you know, <laughs> Apple shouldn't be notarizing malware at all. Obviously it was, it's accidental. Um, but at least they, they did fairly quickly shut it down. They revoked the developer's certificate. So the malware won't actually run if you try to double click it on, on a, a modern Mac. Does it not run? I thought the process was to check the first time you launch an app. And then after that, once it's approved that first time, it continues to run. Well, and, and that's actually one of the, the challenges with uh, with the way that malware is distributed. And if you happen to get some malware notarized, um, it can certainly install an additional payload. That, that's what we often see happen is uh, the first stage, that Trojan horse that usually pretends to be Flash Player, um, usually drops some additional malware onto the Mac. Um, and so once it's run, I mean, it's done its thing and it doesn't really matter at that point if, you know, if Apple revokes that developer certificate, the malware already got installed on your computer. Um, and, and they may be using a different certificate. In fact, it may even be unsigned malware that got dropped as the second stage um, and, uh, and that's, it's possible to do that and sort of like work around Apple's, um, protections in that case. So the notarization is a valid protection for a while, but it's not a hundred percent looking into this and looking at another one that's called gravity rat that we're going to mention in a minute. Um, one thing that struck me in one of the articles was that the group behind Gravity Rat has been using stolen developer signatures to make apps appear legitimate. And, well, this calls into question the whole element of developer certificates and notarization. If someone can hack a developer account, they'll have free reign for quite some time. And there may be people who have developer accounts that they've simply stopped using. Now, you have to pay $99 a year, but let's say you've stopped developing in January and you've got another 12 months or 11 months on your account, if someone hijacks it, they'll have the power um, to get something that is code signed and notarized quite easily. Yeah, this is a really interesting point. Uh, I, I think that we're, we've probably seen this happen more on the Windows side, where a very well-known developer has a, uh, a code signing certificate stolen from them and then used to sign malware. Um, that's definitely happened on, on Windows uh, many times in the past. On the Mac, I, I think it's probably less significant of an issue um, for, for one particular reason, I, th I think that a lot of, especially windows, anti-malware software probably has whitelists for any app that's signed with certain developers certificates. 
for example, um, you want to make sure that you're never, you know, detecting some piece of the Windows operating system as malware, which has happened in the past. Antivirus companies have uh, accidentally deleted <laughs> critical system files in the past. And uh, you don't want that to kind of thing to happen. And so what some antivirus companies will do is they will just whitelist anything that's signed by a particular developer's certificate. Now that becomes a problem if that developer's certificate um, gets uh, stolen and used by a malware developer, because now their malware might just be able to, to bypass your antivirus software. On the Mac, this is a little bit different because as far as I'm aware, there's no special privilege really that a company like Microsoft or Adobe gets. Um, they're all underneath that same umbrella. They have they all have to get their certificate from Apple. It has to be issued by Apple. And, uh, and so they're all essentially pretty equal. Um, now, you could still have the same scenario where uh, an anti-malware company might decide that anything that's signed by a particular developer uh, should just automatically be assumed to be trustworthy. Um, but, uh, you know, there, obviously there's a, there's a flaw in that thinking because of potentially stolen certificates. In your article, there's one thing that I just love. You talk about how this malware uses steganography. And I just love the idea of steganography. I think it's so cool. Steganography is when code is hidden in an image and I, th I think it's, you know, understanding malware is really quite complicated, but understanding steganography as the actual encoding mechanism is really quite simple. Yeah, basically steganography is, uh, it, and this is a sort of an ancient technique that's been around for, I think, hundreds of years. Um, and the idea is that you can stealthily hide secret information inside something that's in plain sight. And usually with steganography, we see this uh, used with um, graphic files, images, because it's pretty easy to hide something within an image because, um, you know, there's there's a lot of variability and, and with like compression techniques and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, JPEGs, for example, don't usually look you know, really perfect and pristine unless they're saved at a very high quality. But most of the time you err a little bit on the side of uh, saving space, especially if it's a JPEG that's going to be in a web page or, or um, things like that. So um, it's not that weird. It doesn't look that anomalous, I guess, if a JPEG has a couple of little splotches here and there. And so when you've got something else encoded within uh within that file there's no way to tell just by opening that graphic it'll open just fine in that in you know in the preview app or photoshop or whatever you want to open it with and it will look like a photo because it is a photo but it's just got something else embedded in it that's hidden so one simple example, um, imagine you've got a photo that's 6,000 pixels wide, right? My camera shoots 6,000 by 4,000 roughly. If you take the first row of pixels at the top of the photo and you just alter the color by one tiny little bit, then each one of those uh, pixels will be a zero or a one. Either it's the correct color or the altered color. And you've got 6,000 characters in the top row. You could alter every color in an image by a single bit, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. We have um, images that are in millions of colors. So the difference between one color and the next is very small. You could put 
all of Shakespeare's works probably in a file like that, because you can not only put code, you can put compressed code that's read and then it's expanded afterwards, which is the, pretty much the case of what you mentioned in your article. Yeah, exactly. They use uh, so, an encoded zip archive and they hide it within this JPEG file. So what happens is uh, the the first stage of the malware uh, knows to look inside this JPEG file. It knows how to extract the zip file that's hiding within it. And then that contains another malicious app that actually does the damage. And this is exactly why this was able to slip past Apple's notarization process. Um, they, what they did here is a lot more clever than what we saw, you know, six or seven weeks ago in, in late August. Um, this is uh, kind of taking it a little bit further by... Now, now there's like almost nothing really perceivably wrong with the, the application that's being submitted to Apple for notarization. So Apple's now going to need to take this, uh, you know, a, a step further in their detection process and really look closely at what an app is doing. And if there's very little code and one of the bits of code says, hey, look at this file and extract something from it. Um, they, they need to start looking at things like that because this is probably going to be something that other malware developers will try doing now that someone has gotten away with it. Okay, so Gravity Rat, which is spyware, initially targeted Windows PCs, and now it is attacking Macs and Android devices. Rats are remote access Trojans, and they install as Trojan horses, so you think it's a Flash player update, Flash is dead, and it installs <laughs> something that calls, that calls to a server and lets the remote server control your computer. Yeah, so, and, and just to be clear, we're talking about a couple different pieces of malware. So the, the first one we talked about was adware that was being distributed. Uh, that's the one that, that was notarized and also used steganography. So Gravity Rat is something different. Um, what's really kind of interesting about this one is that this was originally Windows malware, and it's been redesigned to target Mac and Android. So this is a, a, something that we've actually started to see as a trend now. Um, there was some malware. I don't think we mentioned it um, uh, early in October. Uh, there was an IP storm botnet that did basically the same thing. They took uh, some Windows malware and they redesigned it a little bit to work on Mac and Android um, and also Linux in that particular case. Um, and And so we're seeing this sort of become a trend where Windows malware developers are kind of seeing an opportunity with other platforms and realizing that, oh, hey, actually, you know what? There's tons of Android phones out there. And you know what? There's a lot of Macs out there. Why don't we sort of like take what we've already done and re-engineer it so that it'll work on other platforms? And that way we can infect even more machines and use them as part of botnets, we can control them to, you know, whatever, do whatever we want, send out spam, send a denial of service attack against somebody that we want to take offline or something like that. Okay, before we get to 5G, just a quick mention, um, we have a rumor that Apple will have an event on November 17, announcing their first Apple Silicon-powered Macs. Uh, Apple did announce that they would release them in fall. Fall ends on December 21st, so if Apple is going to ship them before the end of fall, they have to get them out by, well, the 20th or the 21st. And as we've seen in the past, sometimes they'll announce a new Mac that won't ship for a month. So uh, what I'm thinking is that November 17, if this is correct... 
and apparently the person who's reporting this has been quite reliable. Uh, we'll hear about New Max and we'll hear about Big Sur. Will Big Sur come out in November? Will it not come out until Apple releases its own Apple Silicon Max? We'll find out then. So we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and talk about 5G because everyone's talking about 5G, right? You already know that Intego loves Macs. After all, Intego has been making world-class Mac security software since 1997. But did you know that Intego Antivirus is also available for Microsoft Windows? If you've got Windows running on your Mac, either in Boot Camp or in a virtual machine like Parallels, VMware, or VirtualBox, make sure to protect it from malware just like you protect macOS with Intego Security Software. Intego Antivirus for Windows is also a great solution for your friends and family members with Windows PCs. Download a free trial of Intego Antivirus for Windows today, and when you're ready to buy, use the link in the show notes for a special discount. Don't use Windows? Don't worry, we've still got a great deal for you. First-time buyers of Mac Premium Bundle X9 can get Intego's powerful Mac security and utility suite at an incredible 40% savings by using coupon code PODCAST20 at checkout. Intego, makers of the best protection software for Mac, and now for Windows, too. Okay, 5G. We talked about 5G last week because Apple introduced a new 5G iPhone that works with, you know what, 5G. And I'm being <laughs> a little sarcastic, but I saw a supercut of the Apple event from a couple of weeks ago, and it, it was about two minutes long with every single mention of 5G, and then it's 5G, 5G, 5G. You pointed out before the uh, before we started recording that the second most popular phrase was security and privacy, which I find interesting. Um so 5G, what is it? We've been hearing about this for a while. Um, the first Android phones that supported 5G came out early 2019. Apple made a whole event and the big selling point of the iPhone 12 about 5G. So we're going to discuss today what 5G is, how it works, um, and does it make a difference for you? So Josh, in your case, you live in a, well, a secret location, but in a fairly <laughs> large city. I don't know if you'd looked at the maps of coverage for the different phone companies. Um, I have an article on the Intego Mac security blog. I'll link in the show notes. And, and I went to Verizon's website and I looked at the map and you can see the 5G coverage in lower Manhattan. So what's interesting is, first of all, Verizon's using their own sort of terminology, 5G nationwide, which is, well, it's slow 5G, and then 5G ultra wideband, which is what's called millimeter wave. We'll get to that in a second. Not all of lower Manhattan even has the slower 5G. And when you look at the availability of the ultra wideband, there are certain streets and sometimes just corners where you can get the really fast 5G. I think one of the problems with understanding 5G, and particularly in Apple's presentation, is people think that it's going to be fast all the time and everywhere. Mm -hmm. And while all mobile phone technologies uh, face limitations to, to do with the distance from cell towers, um, the number of people using them. Um, 5G is a lot more sensitive to that. So technically, 5G can probably go up to around 20 gigabits. In fact, in, in researching my article, I saw suggestions that it goes to 10 gigabits, others that it can go to 50. And I think for very specific use cases, it can go a lot faster. But for most people, the 5G that they're going to get is pretty similar to 4G. It's not going to be that much faster. Exactly. Yeah, I was taking a look at one of these coverage maps 
And uh, also Verizon, I was taking a look at uh, various areas of California where I've lived or where I, I tend to, to visit. And um, I, I noticed that when you're zoomed out to, to show the whole country, the whole United States, um, Verizon has these little dots on the map where they're like, okay, in this city, there is some coverage of 5G ultra wideband, the really fast one. And so you zoom in and that's, that's what you see in Kirk's article here where um, you've got a street or two, you know, that have the 5G ultra wideband. It's so bizarre the way that it looks because you have blocks. There's a couple of blocks where it looks like that whole block has 5G ultra wideband. But in other cases, it's it seems like it's just if you're on the street, you get 5G ultra wideband, but not if you're kind of in a building or around a corner. Um, it's, it's sort of, um, it's super spotty. It's hit or miss. And thankfully, you should transition seamlessly from one to another. If you happen to be in an area, one of these tiny little pockets that has 5G ultra wideband where you can get super fast speeds and you round a corner. Now, hopefully you still are in a 5G nationwide area. So you're going to get slightly faster than LTE probably. Um, but uh, it's it's definitely not nearly as good as Apple made it seem like in their presentation. It's going to take some time, really. Um, I saw one estimate that probably by the end of 2024, a lot of the 5G ultra-wideband type, uh, the faster speed 5G networks are going to be a little bit more widely available, at least in big cities, and um, probably starting to bleed out into other areas as well. But that, and that's that's far down the road. Yeah, so this is always a chicken and egg situation. The infrastructure um, needs to be built and the phones need to exist. And why build the infrastructure if the phones aren't available? Um, so there's certainly something going on between the manufacturers of the phones and the phone companies to, to roll this out. Every 10 years or so, there's a new generation. It's been roughly at 10-year periods. One of the things about 5G that's different from previous phone standards is that there are essentially three different types of 5G. There's, they work on different frequency bands, low, medium, and high. At low band 5G, you'll get speeds about similar to 4G. Now, you'll get some advantages, and, and I'll get into some of the technical stuff in a minute, but you won't get high speeds. Um, and in fact, in some tests, people are seeing that it's actually a little bit slower than 4G, um, but there are other advantages. Mid-band um, works on higher frequencies, and so here's where it gets complicated. The higher the frequencies, the shorter the range. So a 4G antenna can go maybe about 10 miles. Um, a 5G antenna mid-band is just a few miles. When you get up to the fastest millimeter wave, it's really only a few hundred meters. And ideally, to have good coverage of 5G millimeter wave, they need to put antennas every 400 meters or so. So in other words, they overlap. You will get, if you get mid-band, you'll get faster speeds than on 4G, most likely. And this is probably what most people are going to get. Um, if you're getting, I don't know, 100 to about 900 megabits per second, uh, that's probably faster than what you get at, at home for most people. Millimeter wave, however, gets you up into the gigabits. I'll link to an article on Daring Fireball where John Gruber reviewed the iPhone 12. He lives in Philadelphia and he walked around and he found some spots where he could get millimeter wave 5G and he got I think 2.3 to about 2.7 gigabits. But what he points out is that these are more like Wi-Fi hotspots because the range is so short. It's not only the range being short, but it doesn't go through walls or windows very well. 
The real question is today, does anyone need two gigabits uh, download speed on their phone? Um, in most cases, your phone is not pulling down a lot of data. I mean, there are all sorts of professional industrial applications for this that come later. This is going to be a slow, gradual process that builds up to 5G. As you said, 2024 is probably even a conservative estimate. It could take longer than that. One of the things that you mentioned that I think is worth emphasizing is that for the fastest speeds, you need to be within like a few hundred meters of of the actual cell tower, which means like we're going to have to have an awful lot of additional cell towers more than we have now if we're going to get that ultimate, you know, super fast speed in a lot of places. Um, I don't know how that's going to work out exactly. <laughs> I don't know if if there's that many places uh, where, you know, c- cell companies can put all, all these additional towers that are going to be needed in order for that to be a, a thing. So it'll be interesting to see how they end up um, tackling that problem, whether they just start partnering with more businesses to try to like put a, an, an additional tower on somebody's roof or this or that. Well, one of the advantages here is that 5G antennas can be relatively small. And I'm going to link to a webpage on the IEEE Spectrum website. It's the Institute of Electric and Electronic Engineers. Um, and they talk about the five key 5G technologies, which I'll mention in a second. One thing they say is antennas on small cells can be much smaller than traditional antennas if they're transmitting tiny millimeter waves. This size difference makes it even easier to stick cells on light poles in the top buildings. So think of a long-term installation of 5G that every light pole, that the telephone pole across from my house, which pulls a wire from underground up to the top of the telephone pole and then fiber over to my house, that they could put a cell there. And they could go down 100 yards in the village and put another cell there. And these cells don't need as much power. They don't have to be very large. So the idea would be to blanket an area with 5G cells, which is actually what's necessary um, in order to do this. There is a counterpart to that, that 5G with its increased bandwidth and lower latency, and the lower latency is very important. It's the amount of time it takes for uh, data to get from your device to a server and back. What's necessary for this is that they have a fiber backbone. So if you're in a street um, where all the phone lines are copper or cable, which is common in the States, and then they come into your house, they're going to have to rebuild all that cabling to fiber to be able to put the high-speed 5G hardware in. Now, interestingly, I'm in a village of 100 people in rural Warwickshire in England, and we have gigabit fiber coming to our, our house. And they installed fiber about a year and a half ago in the village and in the area. And it could be that they're planning to do a 5G test here, and we'll let you know in a year or so. There is a balance between the number of cells and the, the frequency range and the distance that's very hard to work out. In a city, it'll probably be easy. You can imagine that you could put 5G cells on stoplights, on light poles everywhere, and it'd be easy to spread it out. But again, these won't go through walls and windows. These are really only for outdoors. I I guess we'll see. It's going to be a few years until we really get to do much with 5G, and especially at high speeds. Um, But if you really want that, you know, and where you might really want this is if you actually are in a big city that does have this kind of 5G coverage from your cell provider. Uh, you know, if if your mobile phone provider has this, sure, 
I mean, if you're going to be in those areas on a, on a regular basis and you really like having blazing fast speeds to load web pages or, or whatever you're doing on your phone. Well, I, you know, I'll tell you what, web pages won't load faster because they're, they're just going to hit a limit. Since I've had gigabit fiber, my web pages don't really load faster. The only thing that loads faster is large files if I download a movie um, or if I'm downloading software updates. That's where it counts. Uh, and, and that's one of the, the, the deceptions around 5G speed that for most of what people do, they just don't need that speed. Well, true. I mean, if you think about it, uh, if you're just loading a web page in a mobile browser anyway, it's usually just text and a couple of images, right? That doesn't necessarily require a lot of speed. And so it, if, if there is a speed difference, it's going to be pretty much imperceptible if you're used to LTE speeds, right? 4G speeds. So as, as you say, I, th- I think video streaming is one of the really big use cases for faster speeds in mobile areas. So if you wanted to stream a video at 4K, maybe you've got uh, a laptop that you want to have tethered to your phone, that's a 5G phone, and you want to be able to stream 4K, you know, in some area where they have this excellent 5G coverage, um, you would be able to do where that. Where you're sitting outdoors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> where, where you're sitting probably outdoors, some some place where you're going to be able to really get uh, those great speeds. So I, I don't know. Like there's there's probably not that many people that this is really all that useful for, especially now we'll see as the, the technology is more widely deployed in the next few years. Okay, so I just want to geek out a little bit on some more of the 5G technology that's really interesting. Um, 5G depends on massive MIMO, M-I-M-O. It stands for multiple input, multiple output. Now, Apple's mentioned this a number of times with their um, cellular radios and Wi-Fi. Uh, what it means is that, that there's more things sending and receiving. It's not a single data stream at once. Um, and so 5G base stations, according to this IEE website, can increase the capacity of mobile networks by a factor of 22 or greater. That's a lot. Add to that beam forming. Now, if you remember back in the day when Apple released their airport, um, was it airport extreme? They started talking about beam forming. If you have a radio transmitter, right? It's transmitting in 360 degrees. It's just, it's just sending out the waves all over the place. Beam forming is directional. It finds where there are devices trying to pick up the waves and it, it, it manages to send them toward those devices and not lose too much data. And 5G is really cool because it can actually send data and bounce it off buildings to get to different devices. Um, I'm not really sure how this works technically. Um, but, uh, in a little video I saw with the, you know, little data streams bouncing off buildings and getting to someone's phone, it does look impressive. And this is going to mean that there'll be less data wasted and more data going directly to devices. Um, the last technology that's really important is full duplex. Today's cell phones work on a system where they send data, then they receive data on the same frequency. If you ever use a walkie-talkie or a CB radio, you can only talk in one direction, right? Full duplex means that the the data can go in both directions on slightly different frequencies, or I think they can alternate. Um, so the amount of data that they can send, even non-millimeter wave 5G, is increased by these MIMO beamforming and full duplex technologies. It is fascinating, but of course, the question is, should you buy an iPhone 12 just for 5G? I think the answer is a resounding no, unless you live on 
one of those streets where they've got millimeter wave 5G and you absolutely have to download a full season of Breaking Bad in five minutes. <laughs> um, or if you work in a place where you absolutely have to go outside and, I don't know, stream some sporting event of which there aren't a whole lot these days and get it in 4K. You know, they're trying to push 8K now. Um, 4K is already borderline for what people can actually see right. on a TV from the distance where they're sitting. Uh, I think 8K is just going to push it a little too far. Yeah, pretty unnecessary. But, uh, well, it, and also, honestly, the 5G speeds are pretty unnecessary for most people anyway. So you only need about 25 megabits per second to stream a 4K film. That's what Apple says for the Apple TV. Um, there's a new compression technology. I forget what it's called. It's going to cut the size of video in half. So you'll even need less. So we're getting more speed when we need less speed as <laughs> compression technologies improve. I, I mean, the, the whole latency thing, and, and I go into it briefly in my article, it, it allows a, th things like virtual reality where you want it to seem like it's happening as you're doing something. Let's say you've got some of those funny goggles and you reach out your hand to touch something. You don't want there to be a slight lag between when you reach your hand and when you touch the object. And the lower latency of 5G is going to improve that. Uh, multiplayer games will, will certainly work better. Um, you know, this is an incremental technology that has, has valid theoretical uses and practical uses. But for a mobile phone to like browse Instagram and Facebook, it's not going to change your life. I, I think that pretty much sums it up. Okay. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com.